Well, it truly is a joy and honor for me this morning to introduce to you our guest preacher. His name is Pat Abendroth. We invited him here primarily to speak at our Man Up yesterday, and he did a great job uh, reminding us men of just the basic biblical principles of loving your wife and living with them in an understanding way. And I hope, ladies, you've already seen some of the fruit of that. Uh, if your man was here yesterday, uh, it was a great time, but uh, we wanted to have Pat preach this morning because I wanted all of you to be exposed to this guy's ministry of the Word. He's a guy who encourages me, he inspires me, he challenges me, and uh, I trust that that will be uh, the case for you this morning as well. Uh, Pat is the pastor of Omaha Bible Church. Uh, He's been pastoring there for 15 years. He was born and raised in Omaha. Uh, He was saved uh, as a college student at the University of Nebraska through the Navigator's Ministry went off to the Master's Seminary. After he was done being trained, he was a college pastor in a couple churches and uh, and then was asked to pastor Omaha Bible Church, which uh, he was telling me the other day what a surreal experience it was. Early on, the the church met in the same high school that he went to, and uh, he was standing on the very same stage preaching God's Word where he had stood as a pagan emceeing the homecoming, and uh, it's a neat opportunity that the Lord has given him to go back to his community and to reach out to those people that uh, didn't know him as a believer, and now he can reach them with the gospel. And so uh, he's an extreme guy in every sense of the word. Everything he does is to the max, and uh, he's uh, into extreme sports. In fact, he's going to be back here in August in Wichita Falls for the Hotter Than Hell 100 cycling race. That's his new craze. His new passion is cycling, and uh, he's also a wakeboarder. He and his son compete. Uh, on the tour, uh, the wakeboarding tour, and uh, he's the only guy I've ever met who has actually wakeboarded on the Sea of Galilee. That was one of his uh, bucket list deals, and so he's done that. But uh, most importantly, he's extreme about Jesus and the gospel, and he's very zealous and passionate uh, for Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation through Christ, and he's going to proclaim that this morning to us. So, Pat, you come on. Good morning, everyone. Trust you're ready for a great day in God's Word this morning. I'm so thankful for this church. First time being here, and you've all been kind and generous to me. I'm thankful for your pastors and for your leaders. And uh, I'm thankful your pastor has a a good reputation, uh, not just in this place, but in many places. And I'm thankful that he is known as a humble servant of Christ who is not in it for selfish gain. And uh, I know you probably know that, but he has that kind of reputation in other places, and I'm really thankful for him and consider it an honor that he allows me to preach from his pulpit. So with that in mind, if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4, and as you're turning there, I'll sort of get things set up so that we can hopefully appreciate what is said there even more. Years ago, a famous Bible teacher by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, he pastored a famous church in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, After him, it was James, or sometime after him, James Montgomery Boyce was there, and then recently, uh, Phil Riken was there. Maybe you've heard of some of those names. But years ago, respected pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, mused, He he speculated, he thought about what it would look like if God were to give full reign of Philadelphia to Satan. What would the city look like if Satan 
were given full charge. And sort of in the spirit of Donald Gray Barnhouse, I would invite you to think about that very idea in your city. What do you suppose it would look like if God were allowed, or God were to allow Satan to have free reign of your community, free reign of your city? What would it look like if that were to be the case? Well, in the spirit of Barnhouse, I'm going to suggest something to you that might shock you. This is, how, this is how Barnhouse responded. He said, each and every church would be absolutely full. If Satan were in charge, there wouldn't be an empty seat in any church. And he would uh, allow sermons to be preached with titles like this. How to slay the giants in your life. Or principles for overcoming discouragement. Or steps toward contentment. Or leadership lessons from an apostle. Now, I don't know about you, but some of those titles sound pretty good to me. They sound pretty good because you could actually find chapters and verses and come up with titles like that. So why would Barnhouse say those are the kinds of sermons that, that Satan would have preachers preach to full churches? And Barnhouse rather profoundly says, that's what Satan would have because the gospel would be missing. And if the gospel is missing, then there's no salvation and there is no hope. And you can be inspired all day long with how-to homilies, uh, amazing character studies. But at the end of the day, Barnhouse would say, there will still be hell to pay. That's a shocker for me. We're sort of at a place right now within evangelicalism, and, and that stands for gospel believers. But even within our own movement, that we're, we're sort of mumbling about the gospel, or we're dancing around the gospel, and so many times we're not clear about what the gospel is, that it really is of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's gotten so, so Challenging that even some outsiders from outside of evangelicalism, outside of the, the gospel-believing community, are talking about it. Shocking. Listen to what one outsider says. So we're busy becoming culturally relevant, reaching out, drawing in, making disciples, managing the machinery, utilizing biblical principles, celebrating recovery, user-friendly, techno-savvy, finding the purposeful life, practicing peace with justice, utilizing spiritual disciplines, growing in self-esteem, reinventing ourselves as effective church entrepreneurs, and in general feeling ever so much better about our achievements. Only to then say this non-evangelical. Notice anything missing in this pretty picture? And he says, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ indeed. Makes me kind of swallow hard. This morning what we're going to do is just have a great little gospel refresher. And the gospel should be refreshing. And even though those things kind of sound like downers, uh, what we're going to do this morning, I trust, is just be refreshed and reminded about the centrality of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. If you would like an outline this morning, we will highlight three details about Abraham that redirect our focus to Jesus. 
I love that you have a cross back here. There's a cross behind me when I preach, and I'm just constantly pointing to that cross back there. I had to do a double take just to make sure. Sometimes when we're doing a service somewhere else and there's no cross, I'm still busy doing this, and the people at Omaha Bible Church think I've lost my mind. But Abraham reminds us that we need Jesus. So let's learn from Abraham not to focus on Abraham or someone else who's of like esteem. The first detail about Abraham that redirects our focus to Jesus instead of himself or some other Bible hero would be the unrighteousness of Abraham. The unrighteousness of Abraham. And that's kind of a shocker when you stop to think about how important Abraham is, but we're going to see that it's true. And when I say unrighteousness, I'm purposely using it because it's a Bible uh, reality. Uh, righteousness is in relationship to the law of God. And so if you're, if you're righteous, that means you're a law keeper. Uh, if you're unrighteous, it means you don't keep God's law. And so let's see that Abraham is a sinner, in other words. He's, he's not righteous. And Romans chapter 4, verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? It's that hook of a question. It's that, that provocative question. Because Paul, now for three chapters, has been talking about how everyone is on what? Everyone is unrighteous. It doesn't matter who. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that you know, he, he's eventually putting the nails in the coffin, saying no one does good, no, not even one. All have sinned. You, you know those texts. But he knows that someone is going to be in the classroom and, and pull the... <clears throat> um, excuse me, um, teacher, so to speak. I have a question. Translation, objection. Um, <clears throat> um, well, you forgot about Abraham. Paul is anticipating that kind of objection by his, his Jewish readers, maybe even Gentile readers who are very biblically literate. What about Abraham? What about him? He's a good guy. He did the right thing. I'm so glad that someone is clearing their throat and asking that question in the back of the room, so to speak. And it's true. Isaiah 51 verse 2 calls Abraham the father of the Jews. That's an important role. And listen maybe even to some, some extra biblical, quote unquote, sacred tradition in what this Jewish sacred tradition says about Abraham. This is what people were believing at the time. Quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. How about another one? Abraham did not sin against thee. How about another one? No one has been found like him in glory. In fact, it was even taught of Abraham that Abraham obeyed the law of God perfectly even before the law of God had ever been given. I don't know who to relate Abraham to if you're not familiar with the Bible. Um, cultural icons today, religious cultural icons, Mother Teresa, maybe, not exactly the same, but someone who, who we would say is a good person certainly doesn't fall under the everyone is sinful, no one does good, no, not one. But if you're biblically literate and you've read your Bible very much, you think, Abraham, he, he's, he's, he's good, surely. Surely he's an exception. But back to that verse 1, what should we say about Abraham? 
And then we go to verse 2, and it carries the logic out. For if Abraham was justified by works, if he, if he, were, if he gained righteousness, if he gained a status of law-keeping by his own actions, by works, he has something to boast about. And let's just stop there for a moment for effect. Paul is saying, absolutely. If Abraham kept the law, if he loved his God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, like God says, then he can boast. It makes total sense. And therefore, it makes total sense in Sabbath school where they teach the little Jewish boys and girls to have every week be another character study about our great father, Abraham. Let's make sure we put him in the center of the flannel board, boys and girls. And let's just keep talking about Father Abraham. Let's just work really hard, boys and girls, to be more like Abraham because he himself is righteous. And let's just keep focusing on him. And next week, boys and girls, for some variety, they could say in Sabbath school, we'll focus on David. And Paul will get to David, by the way. He's making the case and making the point that these exceptions aren't the exceptions. So, by way of application, why would we focus on them and forget the gospel? Because these guys needed the gospel too. These guys should point us to the need for atonement because they sure needed it. I love the way this unfolds. I love that he's using these cultural icons of their day, and we can even relate. But do notice what it says at the end of verse 2. But not before God. Paul can't let it go on. Oh yeah, he could boast! And then he, he just can't let it go on any longer. But not before God. He knows that Abraham didn't achieve righteousness. And so he can't boast in front of God. If we look ahead just a little bit, um, let's not take a lot of time to do this, but let, let, let's see after that abrupt comment, let's see where Paul is headed in, in seeing Abraham's unrighteousness. Uh, verse 3 says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, he trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, that doesn't say he's unrighteous, but that implies it because he is given righteousness. That implies that he himself doesn't have righteousness. It's a gift. We'll get to that later in detail. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but trusts or believes him who justifies the, in the same sentence with Abraham, the ungodly. He's talking about the likes of Abraham. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also, oh, he's going to go after him too speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, that is law-keeping apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless relationship to David, deeds are forgiven, he needs forgiveness, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. These guys aren't the exception. They actually prove the point. They actually affirm Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No, not one. Let's learn something about the greatness of the gospel from the unrighteousness of Abraham. 
Let's learn that our focus, as we look to Abraham, he's called a great man of faith. Faith in God for righteousness because he didn't have any. Let's, let's embrace that. And as we look to him, we should see him, if you will, with this flashing sign saying, look to Christ for righteousness because I certainly had to. But isn't it unsettling and troubling how we don't do that? I mean, our bent, our natural, let's call it unnatural because of sin, our, our bent is to, to constantly look to people like us and think somehow wrongly, but to think somehow they're good enough and they can make it because they have such high quality of character. And then if they can make it, then I can make it. If I just do more, try harder. We're just like that. We, our default mode is salvation by works. And we always seem to get distracted from salvation by the work of Christ. And Abraham is a great, great, great example of what? Faith, yes, but faith in God for righteousness. So he's a great example of unrighteousness. And it's refreshing to be able to see that here. Look to Abraham. Look at what a sinner he is so that you too can identify with him and see that you need something more from him. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking, this isn't good news. I came to church to be encouraged. And the pastor just keeps talking about unrighteousness. Now we need to identify with unrighteous guys. Well, we got to go there, right? If we're ever going to see the goodness of the good news, I'm trying to free you in a sense and, and, and be freed myself from just trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps and do more, try harder, be like Abraham. Like when? When he lied? He's the great example to point us to Christ. That's how Paul's using him. I'm thankful. I'm so thankful for that, for that guy or gal in the back of the room that Paul was anticipating. He doesn't break the argument. He actually is the guy to whom you say, I'm so glad you asked. You know, thank you for teeing that ball up for me so I can just knock it out of the world. It makes the point makes the point. Well, we'll talk more about some application in a little bit. Let's, let's do number two, a second detail about Abraham that redirects our focus to Jesus instead of Abraham even, and that would be the Bible in context. The Bible in context. We can make this rather simple observation, but look at verse three with me again, if you would, where it says, for what does the scripture say? You just got to like the sound of that. Well, hey, everybody, I know, I, you can take your sacred tradition all you want, but let, what does the Scripture say? That's where Paul's taking them back to. What does Holy Writ say? What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15.6 verbatim. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't have righteousness in and of himself. He had to trust God to provide righteousness for him. And I want to make the point here, that, that comes from, from embracing the Bible in context. Because, think with me if you would, you could find a verse here, and a verse here, and a verse here, and a verse here, that would seemingly prove the opposite. Because you can find Abraham doing relatively good things. 
You, you, you can see him in Genesis 22 and, and doing something that is right, and you say, that's admirable. Good job, Abraham. But Paul pulls out an anchor verse, if you will. He pulls out the verse that everybody knows, and it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. He pulls out Genesis 15 that every Jewish boy and girl should know, every Christian should know, because it's so emphasized in both Testaments. Hey, verse here, verse here, verse here, but Bible in context, you all know that God or Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And you and I know we make the Bible say all kinds of crazy things. And oh, back to that Satan thing. Satan quotes the Bible too. He just misuses it, misquotes it, but he uses the Bible. Let's not think for a moment that the Jewish teachers in the first century, let's not think for a moment that they weren't quoting the Bible. Yes, extra tradition too, but they, they could quote Bible verses. And say, boys and girls, just try harder, do more, be like Abraham. And here's a verse to put at the bottom of the coloring book for today. Though they didn't have coloring books, probably. Here's a verse at the bottom of the flannel graph. At Shabbat, when we gather on Saturday. Probably no flannel graphs either. But they could use the Bible just like you and just like me. We can use the Bible to make our point. But here are these watershed kinds of texts that the rest of Scripture really needs to be read in light of. And Paul uses it in context. I, I like to say, I'm sure your pastor says something similar. You can prove anything with the Bible, but not in context. And Paul's calling for, what does the Scripture say? What does the clear teaching say? And then he just quotes one of those granddaddy foundation texts. I want to encourage you today to read your Bible in light of the granddaddy foundation texts, in light of those key anchor texts that are quoted all over the place, that, that, that everything is looked at in light of. And what you'll see is Abraham is a sinner needing righteousness, and so he trusts God to provide righteousness. And then what you'll see is you too need to be like Abraham and trust God for righteousness that's not yours, that comes from you being a good, faithful Abraham follower. But it comes from God as a gift because of ultimately the work of his son. This is good news. This is great news. By way of application, I think this is a good place for us to, to maybe at times come clean as teachers. If you're teaching, and everyone in this room somehow is probably teaching someone, whether it's your children, uh, it's adults, whether it's on the Wednesday night program, uh, whether it's during some Sunday school classes or vacation Bible school or wherever it is, I like what John MacArthur says, find someone who knows less than you and teach them. Um, I mean, we're all kind of in the teaching phase in one way or another. But for a little conviction, let me ask you, what's your teaching like? When the little boys and girls, or maybe the big boys and girls with gray hair, I don't know. But when they leave your class, who are they really impressed with? Who's the hero of the Bible? 
What we don't want is them to walk out of the classroom impressed with themselves because they too can try hard and just be faithful like Abraham was. It's not what we want. It's not what we want. Who are they impressed with? We want them to be impressed with Christ. The power even to live a godly life is ultimately tied to the work of Christ because it's through the work of Christ and trusting in the work of Christ that we have the Spirit of God in us. Boast in Christ. You know, Paul talks about we don't preach ourselves but Christ Jesus. And you say, well, I don't do that. I'm not boasting preaching myself. I'm just preaching about how great all these guys are in the Bible. Translation, you're preaching yourself because they're like us. And we'll just try to be like them, and God will accept us. And after all, it's in the Bible. Put the brakes on that. Put the brakes on that. I was at a conference in another country, and someone else was speaking, and I was a guest, and someone else was speaking, and this guy, he, he had it going on. I felt, like a, I felt like a preaching dwarf. I mean, he had a much nicer suit on than I had, and he had the killer PowerPoint, and all these people from the other country, they were like mesmerized by, by how flashy and everything was. You could just sense that it was true. Everybody wanted to go to his breakout session, man. He just had, he had the bling, the, the pastoral bling maybe. He went to the right school, probably a million times smarter than me. He preached a sermon about overcoming temptation. And he did it from the life of David. And he never mentioned Jesus one time. And never said anything even remotely close to the gospel. I call it the deity of David sermon. I'm thinking, what do I do? I know, I, I know I'm a failure. I know, I, who am I to throw the first rock? But what do I do? I want to talk and I, I want to do something. And so afterward, I, I went to the car with my friend and, uh, who was there as well, and I had to put him in restraints in the front, in the front row, I think, because he was more upset than I was. And we got to the car, this little tiny car, and our hosts were in the front seat, this man and his wife. I wanted to talk about it, you know, but I'm a guest in a foreign land. Silence. Door shut. And the man in the front seat said, well, that was a good Mormon sermon, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm told, I, I, I wasn't laughing, but I'm with you. And, you know, it was just like the air just went out of the, the it came back into the car. And it was just like, oh. I'm so glad that he knew and we could talk about it. There was no gospel. There was no Christ. Therefore, there was no power. And so therefore, he just gave all those people from this country legalism, moralistic do-gooderism, which actually doesn't work. I mean, let's just think about this. David for overcoming temptation? <laughs> Hello? You know, you could prove it with the Bible, though, but not in context, because you know what I know. Huh. 
I use that as an illustration, and then I fall on my own sword. I'm terrified to go back and listen to old sermons that I've preached. It's just easier to judge other people and feel good about ourselves, but you know, I'm front of the class, big, big fat sinner. Um, we're thankful that salvation is not based upon good sermons, right? <laughs> or perfect theology. Uh, it's based upon God's perfect work through Christ. Praise Jesus. <laughs> but it makes the point, I think. And based upon your responses of terrified laughter, it made the point. <laughs> right? Let's think about this. When you send little Johnny home, I have a little Johnny, by the way. If you're teaching my little Johnny, who's not so little, but... I would say at Omaha Bible Church, when you teach my children, please don't extol the virtues of David. David the adulterer, David the fornicator, David the liar, David the murderer. Okay, well, we'll focus on Noah, Noah the drunk. I mean, I'm going. <laughs> Let's think about this, folks. Yes, they are to be admired and looked to because they end up being men and women, those characters of faith which is not a virtue in and of itself. Faith is trusting in someone outside of yourself, trusting in God to provide perfect righteousness through a substitute. And so let, let's talk about those folks, but let them, through the Bible in context, like Romans 4, it's really helping us, I think, point us to Christ. And then we're motivated. And then we're motivated. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to number three. I'm having a great old time. This is fun, I'm thankful. I hope it's motivating to you. Uh, but let's, let's, let's move on. And as you're going to number three, oh, by the way, I was in your bookstore yesterday and I saw the Jesus Storybook Bible. I saw the Big Picture Story Bible. It just warmed my heart. It warmed my heart because I'm thankful that even though there's this kind of trend in evangelicalism that we're forgetting the gospel and mumbling about the gospel, uh, there are folks that are seeing the need, folks at this church, people writing books for children even, and it's not all about the deity of David. I love those two children's Bibles. I tell adults to read them because they're trying to emphasize the big picture of the story and God's plan of redemption like Pastor Ken talked about this morning in this psalm we read. It's refreshing to read those, those, those Bibles that are for our kids. Number three, the reality of, you ready for the theological word of the day? The reality of imputed righteousness. The reality of imputed righteousness. Purposely using the big word just so we can go, oh, time to wake up. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reality of credited righteousness. It's borrowed from the world of commerce and banking. Uh, that if, if their money is credited to your account, they're given to you, they're imputed to you. They're not yours, but they're given to you. If you're in the red, you have monies imputed to you, so you're in the black. Okay, that's the idea. And the Bible uses that kind of t commerce terminology so that we can understand that we have righteousness credited to us. Spiritually, you're in the red. Not zero, but in the red. And God, for Abraham, David, people like you and me, based upon the perfect righteousness of Christ, the law-keeping of Christ, he credits a, that to us. And Abraham and David both teach us that. Okay? So let's go ahead and see it in verse 3 again. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, he trusted God, and it was 
counted. There's our word. It was imputed. It was credited to him as righteousness. That's a a gospel verse. That's a good news verse. It was given to him even though he didn't deserve it. Even though he doesn't use the word grace in verse 3, it has grace all around it, flowing from it, because it wasn't actually inherent in him. It wasn't because he did the right thing. It was imputed to him. It was credited to him. It was given to him. And that's why the word believed is there. And it's so important. It's wholly a gift of divine grace and because of God's great love. In chapter 3, proves this because you've got no one does good. No, not one. Ultimate good is the idea. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And then chapter 3 goes on to talk about Christ's work and what Christ has done and His perfect atonement and His perfect work. We need imputed righteousness, credited righteousness. And Abraham teaches us that very, very thing. Then verse 4 says, here's the illustration. Now to the one who works... Still business image. His wage is not credited, not imputed as a favor, as grace, but as what is due. And everyone in, in this room who's ever had a job knows, knows the meaning of that verse. Don't have to know Greek. Don't have to be a scholar. Don't have to study theology. You all understand that, right? The one who works, if your parents give you a job, boys and girls, and they say, if you do this, we'll pay you, and then... Adults, you work this many hours, you get paid this much per hour, or this is what your salary is if you do these things according to your job description. The one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So here here you are, moms and dads, you go to work and you work 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, sometimes more hours than that, and you work super hard, and I realize we get direct deposits and all that kind of stuff now. But just for the sake of effect... On Friday afternoon, like it used to be for me in my, my construction job, bearing telephone cable, uh, the, the owner of the company, his name, let's call him Leroy, because that was his name. Um, <laughs> and he would pass out the checks. He'd do this. You know, and pass them out, and we had to kind of go pay homage to, to, to Leroy. And Leroy would pass out those checks, and can you imagine if Leroy would have said, I have a gift for you. Now, I, was, I did it for seven years. I was low in the totem pole. I probably would have taken it and walked away thinking, gift my foot. <laughs> but there were other people there who were more tenured than I was, and they would have said, gift? Gift schmift. What do you mean gift? I, what? I earned it. I worked hard. We had a 72 and a half hour work week. Don't tell me gift. I earned every cent of this. And Paul's using that as an illustration. If you work for something, it's not a gift. It's what is due. And he's going to use Abraham, and he is using Abraham to make the point, it's not because Abraham was such a good Bible character that God said, let me give you righteousness. No. It didn't work like that. It ends up being a gift. My favorite part, favorite part is verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts or believes or depends upon him who justifies, that is, declares righteous, declares as if you are a law keeper, declares righteous, justifies the 
ungodly. His faith, context is his faith in Christ based upon chapter 3. His faith in Christ is counted as righteousness, as law-keeping. Now that's a mouthful and that's a major verse filled with all kinds of good, rich truth. But let's make sure we see what he's saying. It's not the one who does all these things and does all the things right. It's not the one who works, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous people who aren't righteous. And based upon the verse before, it's based upon that credited righteousness. And it says his faith, faith in Christ, is counted as righteousness. My friends, this is good news, right? This is the hallelujah chorus bursting inside of you news. Yes! Because I'm a sinner. I get it. And and, and it's not based upon my deeds. It's based upon the deeds of Christ ultimately. And I'm trusting in him. The reality of imputed righteousness, credited righteousness. And Abraham teaches us that. It's it's amazing. I would say say it's incredible, but it's credible. (laughs) It's absolutely credible. It's amazingly credible. Do notice that purposeful contrast one more time, just, just in, especially if the Bible is new to you, but for everyone. In verse 4, I underlined four important words in my translation. Now to the, these four words. The one who works, if you underline in your Bible like once a year, this is a good time. I'm giving you permission. Um, the one who works, and then in verse 5, and to the, oh, here are some important words. The one who does not work. Notice the purposeful contrast. There's the one who works and the one who does not work. Who is acceptable before God? It's the one who does not work. Because even those works are tainted by sin. It's the one who does not work. And trusts in the one who did all the work. Yes. So good. Should stoke the fires of our hearts and worship him. And here we're learning it from an Old Testament guy. Learning it from Abraham as the example. Now this is scandalous, I know. It rubs us the wrong way because I want to do it myself. And I know I'm a good person and I can do it myself and I can do it. And don't tell me I haven't earned it. I'm a self-made man. We all kind of think like that. Other religions think like that. By the way, these two verses we just read, this is what makes Christianity different from every religion on the planet. This one rubbed Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, so wrong that he made up his own translation. He called it the inspired translation. You know. Here's Joseph Smith's translation. You can look at your verse 5 and I'll read his perverse verse 5. Him who justifieth not the ungodly. Guess how many manuscripts that's in? Zero. His belief system was based upon his own righteousness, character following, if you will. And he couldn't swallow the gospel because the gospel is tied to the work of Christ doing it for us. It makes Christianity unique. This made Rome so upset, a different religion, that according to Canon 7, Session 6 of the Council of Trent, you'd be thinking about your verses and what the Bible actually says, and I'll quote this. If anyone should say that men are justified merely by the imputation of the justice or righteousness of Christ, um, that would be me. 
and that would be you, probably. Or that, the, or that the grace by which we are justified is a mere favor of God, let him be anathema. Let him be damned without opportunity for repentance. Mm-hmm. And so we damn the gospel. Abraham teaches us that you're right before God based upon righteousness, yes, based upon law-keeping, but not yours. His. It's Christ. It's good news. Some people say that's too good to be true. I mean, it's different than anything I've ever heard. That's right. <laughs> and God loved us enough to do for us what we ourselves could never do. Christ is virgin-born. He fulfills the law for us. Matthew 5. It's amazing. I so love it. How can this possibly be? Back in chapter 3, we learned how it could possibly be. Let's go back there just for a moment. I just can't stand it. I just want to go there. I don't want to assume anything. How could this possibly be? How could God look at you and say, I'm going to say that this sinner is a perfect law keeper when your wife or husband knows it's not true? Right? Your mom and dad. Or your kids know it's not true. How can God look at you and say, perfect law keeper? How can God look at me and say, Pat Abendroth, I look at you as if you have loved me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've loved your neighbor as yourself, which is, by the way, what Jesus says the law is. Welcome into my family because you've treated me like I'm God. How can he do that? He can't and be a just judge unless someone did in my place. You see? And this is what chapter 3 teaches us. Drum roll, please. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 24. And we're talking about the justified, the declared righteous, the declared law keepers. Verse 24, Romans 3. By His grace as a gift through the redemption. Here's how. That is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. So he's going to provide atonement for all of our law breaking. So that's not held against us anymore. This was to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness. That is God, God in his perfect justice as a judge. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How about verse 26? It was to show, to demonstrate his righteousness. That's what happened at the cross. That's what happened with what Christ did. He was demonstrating his righteousness. He's upholding his law. Keep reading. At the present time, so that he, God, might be just or righteous, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mouthful, I know. But here's God not compromising, saying, I know I'm a just judge, and then I'm just not going to keep uh, uphold my law anymore. No, he upholds his law, but he provides a substitute to do all of these things in our place. So he can be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No compromising. It's so good. Let's just pretend like this is a Lakeside Baptist Church for a minute, can we? What would you say? <laughs> we say amen. <laughs> Which means I agree. Yes. It's so good. 
Well, just, thought, just when you thought you were safe because you were that second person in the back of the room saying, <clears throat> you forgot about David. He's the exception. Let's just finish up and look at verse 6. Just as David, oh, so glad you asked. Just as David, same with David, also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts, here's that imputation idea, counts righteousness apart from works, He's going to quote Psalm 32, so this is, in, this is biblical. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Atonement again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Point is, he's saying the same thing. The same deal. And they're like the two big guns in the Old Testament. So if it's true of Abraham, it's, and it's true of David, it's certainly true of everybody else. Let those folks, men and women, do what they would do if they were standing here. And if they were sitting in the back of your Sunday school class. Points you to imputed righteousness outside of them, outside of you. Remind you of the gospel. Remind you of the gospel. Let's end on this. In our newcomers class in Omaha Bible Church, I've, I've stopped doing this. I've repented. But I used to say, true or false, true or false, the essence of Christianity is that we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't answer. That's why I don't ask anymore. Because nine times out of ten, people would say true. The essence of Christianity is that we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said that that's the summary of the law. It's what he says in the Gospels, and the Jews agree with him. The essence of Christianity is the law. What? What? Now let me ask it a different way. Is it true that we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely we should. Is it good for God to say, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yeah, the law is good. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. But when we are suggesting that Christianity at its essence is the law, we're in trouble. What have we done? The essence of Christianity is what? You know, hint, hint. Psst. <laughs> the essence of Christianity is the work of Christ, who, by the way, is the perfect lawkeeper. He came here to love his Father on our behalf with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, not to mention to love his neighbor as himself, the other side of things, because we don't. So that if we trust in Him, it's as if we had done it perfectly and we can have His righteousness, His law-keeping credited to us. It's good news. So that God can declare us righteous even though we're not. And then on the other side of things, is it true that we as Christians, out of appreciation and out of gratitude, as an act of worship, is it true that we should seek to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yeah, absolutely. Out of gratitude, but not out of essence to earn the favor of God. 
Let's be challenged today to think about the work of Christ and to never forget about the work of Christ and to love and worship God and be motivated to love God because of the work of Christ and indeed seek to obey God because we can because of the work of Christ and he's given us his spirit to empower us. One more time, let's pretend like we're Baptists. Amen? All right, good. Thanks for, thank for, thanks for the affirmation. Father, thank you so much for uh, the dear saints here at Lakeside Bible Church. And thank you for the, the, the joyous time we can have studying your word together and being reminded what Paul reminded Timothy of, that we should remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David, risen from the dead, and that we would always remember Jesus Christ and we would boast in Jesus Christ and we would find great joy knowing that we are safe and sound in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.